This evening, I want to continue to explore the factor of knowledge and vision of things as they are further and really take off from where Mary Grace was exploring last night and in a way uh, build on her exploration of particularly the um, way that self gets constructed and deconstructed and in a way fill out the meaning of this um, this really important place of knowledge and vision of things as they are. It's really the heart of our practice. It's the actually, this is the insight of insight meditation. We are now at the point of the retreat where we are focusing on insight. This is where you get your money's worth. So in terms of the model that we've been exploring, which is really kind of an experiment, we were wanting to have some of the unity and coherence of, a, of a, uh, an approach that we could explore together and have uh, a larger understanding and form at least uh, a good part of the retreat. And so we're exploring this sense of transcendental or uh, liberative dependent arising. And it really is the way that our freedom unfolds once we take a different attitude towards suffering, once we're willing to uh, work with suffering. In a sense, everything changes. And freedom opens up. And we've seen how a number of the factors support that sense of emerging freedom. Different aspects of faith and delight and joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration. And in particular, there's a very important, uh, in a sense, uh, support from concentration that lets us much more easily see clearly. And it really marks what's particularly innovative uh, about the Buddha's teachings, that in his own history, he in many ways followed the concentrative practices, we might say, of the yogic traditions of India, of his time. And at a certain point, he felt that they weren't fully adequate for liberation. He had mastered the concentration practices of the best teachers of his time. They had, I I believe, invited him to teach. And they weren't, for him, adequate to really getting at that original question with which he had uh, set off on his quest. That is, what is suffering and how do we understand it and how do we transform suffering to go beyond suffering in the sense of that um, reactivity and lack of peace with experience. And again, it wasn't that the Buddha was saying, I want to go beyond pain. And one of my um, own delights in reading some of the text is that some aspects of Buddha's uh, old age and his pains, his aches and pains were not censored out. It's really great. I could imagine many traditions where it gets censored out. So he had um, a bad back. He also had headaches at times. And so perhaps the counterpart of these evenings, he would, some night he would say to Ananda, Ananda, I got a bad headache. Can someone find someone else to give the talk tonight? And so clearly when he talks about transforming suffering, he's not talking about getting rid of pain, but rather changing the relationship to the the unpleasant and the difficult. 
And so he gave this further teaching, which is really the teaching that is quite close to this sense of knowledge and vision of seeing things as they are, as it's sometimes translated, that builds on concentration. And concentration gives the requisite clarity of seeing in order to notice what's there. And in a way, we often practice both maybe in each sitting or sometimes in the flow of a retreat, we cultivate a certain degree of stability of attention, a certain degree of concentration, and then we bring the attention to look at experience carefully. We build on that concentration. And we see, over time, all sorts of things, all the mysteries and wonders and commonalities of that still forest pool that Mary mentioned at the end of her talk. The still forest pool that all the animals come to and we see them. We're by the still forest pool and we notice what comes and goes. So I want to explore some what those insights are, what actually we see when we cultivate knowledge and vision of things as they are. And I want to say just a few words about the, the term itself. The term is uh, yatabhuta nana dasana. And uh, those of you who are here for the first month in February, uh, yatabhuta was a a theme during that retreat. You may remember. Um, I was actually here probably four or five of the talks and, and um, uh, yatabhuta is the part that's translated things as they are, but probably more accurately it means uh, what is arising or what is happening in the present moment. There's actually nothing in the term that has anything to do with things. <clears throat> so, and nana is knowledge <clears throat> and dasana is seeing. It's the same root that we get the word uh, darshan, you know, with, with uh, which many of us are familiar, which can mean view or perspective. And so together it really more accurately could be said to be what we know and see directly when it's arising. So it really has that more meditative meaning, not so much knowledge of things as they are, which can almost suggest something metaphysical. You know, now finally the key is there. I unlock the key and it's like some of those uh, drawings from the uh, Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages where you know someone someone's head goes through the rainbow and looks into and sees the archetypal forms of the universe. Um, sorry, it's, we don't do that. <laughs> it's, well, let me take that back. <laughs> so if that happens, fine, but we're, we're the, <laughs> the root is really through, as you know, through being with ordinary experience with the breath, and with uh, pleasant and unpleasant and so forth. And so it's really, uh, this phrase really takes us, particularly emphasis on seeing or vision points to the directness. So it's this kind of direct seeing into what is arising in the moment. And that's the uh, stage uh, that we're at as we're, or the, the um, the factor that we're focusing on, on the basis of concentration, we're able, able to see. And yet there is a sense that our normal conditioning doesn't permit us to see very accurately. That rather than, as it were, having knowledge and vision of, of things as they are, 
our more common experiences of knowledge and vision of things as they aren't. Which I want to explore for a while. <laughs> so it's this, so what I what I'd like to do is to, in a way, through exploring how we don't see clearly, and really uh, building again on a lot of what Mary Grace was saying, exploring how we don't see clearly, and in that way pointing to how we might see clearly. The essential teaching that we get is goes something like this, and I think it's, it's very, very familiar to us. It's something like this. We don't perceive our experience accurately. We either distort or are selective or project or fabricate. So we don't perceive our experience uh, accurately. And on the basis of our misperceptions, we think an enormous amount. We form a world based on our misperceptions and more fully on all our thoughts. And this is called ordinary life. And there are a lot of ways that we can feel into that understanding. There are, in many traditions, there are these various images of this sense of misperception or of not seeing clearly. Um, and I want to mention some of these, and these may resonate some with our experiences of, of the retreat at times. You know, one image that's quite famous is, is um, that of the cave in Plato's Republic, which some of you probably read in Philosophy 101. Or you may not have got there because it was towards the end of the book, so. But in any case, you may, you may know of that image or have heard of it. It's a very powerful one and very much uh, analogous to the teaching of the Buddha, in which some kind of core ignorance, core lack of seeing uh, clearly, is a root problem. And so in that image from Plato, he says, we are as if we are chained in a cave with other fellow prisoners. We sit with our backs to a large fire. And we look at the wall of the cave and look at the shadows in the darkness. And the, behind us, a group of fellow prisoners carry shapes and forms in front of the fire producing the shadows. And he goes on at other places to say, this gets very developed as a form of life and people actually get prizes for writing beautiful essays about the shadows. But he says it's not real. And actually the spiritual path is to realize that these are only shadows and to move outside the cave into the sunlight and see things accurately. It's one image that our lack of seeing clearly is as, as, is, is as if we are in the darkness. Or I, I thought also of the line in the uh, Christian Bible that we see as through a glass darkly. Very strong image. Or there's the image that this is very dreamlike, that our existence has a dreamlike quality to it at times. And we may sometimes feel that on, on the retreat. Uh, this is from Chuang Tzu, from the Taoist tradition. Those who dream of a merry drinking party may the next morning wail and weep. Those who dream of wailing and weeping may in the morning go off gaily to hunt. While they dream, they do not know that they are dreaming. In their dream, they may even try to interpret their dream. Only when they have awakened do they begin to know that it was a dream. By and by comes the great awakening, and then we shall know that it has all been a great dream. And then, as if to complicate things, he says this, another, another story. 
Once upon a time, Chuang Tzu dreamed that he was a butterfly, a butterfly fluttering about, enjoying itself. It did not know that it was Chuang Tzu. Suddenly he awoke with a start and he was Chuang Tzu again. But he did not know whether he was Chuang Tzu who had dreamed that he was a butterfly or whether he was a butterfly dreaming that he was Chuang Tzu. <laughs> Between Chuang Tzu and the butterfly, there must be some distinction. So it kind of complicates the plot a little bit. You know, even if it's a dream, who is dreaming? And, and we may have that sense sometimes. I spoke with someone who was a participant in uh, an earlier part of this two-month retreat. And she said, uh, without me talking about dreams at all, she unprompted said, I think my retreat experience was about 90% dreaming. You're being in my bubble and creating thoughts and fabricating things. And it may feel like that sometimes. That, that, that quality of the dream can be, be quite strong. Or one more image. This is from Rumi. That it, as, it is as if, I'm having trouble with it is as if, but that came out okay. It is as if we are drunk. Another metaphor. Not a common Buddhist metaphor, but <laughs> common for the, the Sufis, yes. And this is, this is, so we are as if drunk. This is Rumi's poem called The Tavern. We are all as if at a tavern drunk. All day I think about it, and then at night I say it. Where did I come from, and what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I would break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. So some of these images may have resonated with you, and we may sometimes at the retreat feel in a kind of a a bubble or some kind of fabricated or constructed chain of thought. We may just get preoccupied with something. It could be, you know, um, the meditator near us who has some behavior that is definitely a problem. (laughs) And we can construct a whole alternative universe around that person, including perhaps a depth psychological analysis of where it all came from, you know. Or at least we can go somewhere with that. Or we can, maybe sometimes, I know this is my experience when I've been a retreat, and sometimes I can make a huge construction out of the interview. Does anyone do that? (laughs) You know, and we have this bubble form, and then we get there and kind of all gone, or, or, or something else happens. And it's very useful to kind of tune in to when we feel in that kind of constructed mind space and to to feel it, feel it in the body, see what it's like. So when the Buddha talked about seeing clearly, he talked about really cutting through our ignorance, cutting through the ways that we, that we don't see clearly. And the first uh, real guidance he gave is what we've been exploring in the foundations of mindfulness. It's really to be with our experience as directly as possible. Be with all of the elements of our experience. There's a famous story uh, called, called it's, it's about the wanderer named Bahia. Uh, who was a wanderer called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. And many of you probably may have heard this 
this account, and he was a wanderer who wanted to get the core teachings of the Buddha. And he came up to him asking, and he had a sense that there was a great urgency to get uh, the core teachings, or what we might call the pith teachings, the essential teachings. He had a sense, great sense of urgency, and he came up to him when, when the Buddha and his uh, monks were on alms round, and he asked him, please teach me. And the, the Buddha says, I'm on alms round now, as if you know, it's socially inappropriate. Do it, you know, can you come back at the interview time, or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and so a little later he asked again, and the Buddha gave the same response. It's, you know, it's, I will talk to you later, but it's alms round now. And a third time, Bahia asked. And uh, in that tradition, at times, when one asks three times, there is a kind of a social etiquette of, yes, now we will respond. And so the Buddha responded and talked to him. And this was his brief summary of the core teachings for knowledge and vision of things as they are. It goes like this. Bahia, you should train yourself like this. Whenever you see a form, simply see. Whenever you hear a sound, simply hear. Whenever you smell an aroma, simply smell. Whenever you taste a flavor, simply taste. Whenever you feel a sensation, simply feel. Whenever a thought arises, let it just be a thought. Then you will not exist. Whenever you do not exist, you will not be found in this world, another world or in between. This is the end of suffering. And Bihia went on his business, and a short time later, actually, uh, was killed uh, by um, a bull. Just a very short time later. And so the urgency had actually been, as it were, kind of premonition. But the Buddha later said that he had actually taken that guidance and gone deeply and found liberation. And that's really, that in a sense is one of the shortest expressions we could find of the instructions that we gave over what? Two weeks or so. We could have just read this every morning, right? And we could probably also answer most of the questions just by reading that. Because it really is the, it really is the core teaching And yet, it's hard for us to do that. We give that instruction over and over again. Just feel what's there. Just experience what's there. And yet, we still find it hard to do that. We find it hard to be with what's present at times for all sorts of different reasons. And as that practice progresses, and as we stay with experience, we begin to open up to what the, the, the Buddha called the three core insights that, that Mary mentioned, uh, Mary Grace mentioned last night, which are taken really to be the core insights that practice leads to, and that if we penetrate them deeply and profoundly, are deeply freeing. And those are the insights into impermanence, into suffering, and into the absence of a solid, separate self, sometimes said to be the insight into anatta, or not-self. Wes Nisker, who was um, on our retreat for the first two weeks, he framed those three insights very succinctly, like this. And I think he, he actually took the suffering, the insight into suffering first. He said, life is hard. It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. These are the three insights we are leading towards. (laughs) Life is hard. It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. So what I'd like to do is to explore those three insights, and in doing so, really show a lot of the ways that it's actually hard to perceive accurately. What are some of the ways that we don't see clearly. Because I think ultimately, 
we have to be experts on our own patterns of delusion. And actually, I think it's a very important part time in practice when we get highly interested in the structures of our delusion. Rather than looking for peace. I know for me that was very important for a lot of my years. I think I was mostly into getting kind of concentrated and blissful and a little bit numbing out. No one here is doing that, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> At least most of the time. Um, but for me, I think it actually was uh, a turning point to actually get interested in my own suffering and to be interested in seeing the patterns, the structures. It's like the, you know, it's like the uh, kind of the bars on the prison, the bars that would keep me uh, more contracted or more um, constricted. And so we have to really study these and have an interest. And that takes a certain maturity to be able to do that, to be able to look really carefully at our suffering and our forms of delusion takes maturity, it takes uh, faith, confidence, we have to have access to some joy. It takes some of the qualities we were mentioning before. The poet Yeats once said that to look deeply and carefully at oneself is the hardest thing that one can do in one's life and takes far more courage than being on the battlefield. And so I want to look at these three insights and just bring out a little bit further the kind of ways that we have trouble seeing accurately and then point to how we might be able to see and really in a way point to some ways that we can practice with these insights. And I'll talk first about the the second insight about suffering, then about impermanence and less about the Uh, insight into not-self, because Mary Grace covered that a lot uh, and really brought out a lot of those pieces uh, really nicely last night. So the (coughs) teaching about suffering or the insight into suffering, something we've been looking at a lot, it's really an insight into the... (laughs) It's an interesting time to take a sip of water. (laughs) (laughs) It's really an insight into. (laughs) (laughs) Suffering and the roots of suffering. You probably knew that. (laughs) Uh, Into being able to be with suffering and see suffering and get a sense of the roots of it. And I think with all of these insights, uh, I think that there are several different levels. There are ways that we can go deeper into a particular insight. And I I like the Tibetan model of having for a teaching, they talk about having an outer teaching, an inner teaching, and an innermost teaching. I think that is, is helpful in a way because with each of these insights, we can see these different levels at which the insight may, may come. So with um, looking at suffering, we can see our more outward behavior. How do I grasp? How do I grasp or push away in ways that are connected with suffering? We can look at our behavior, our more outward action. We can also look at our um, experience moment to moment and see what do I do with suffering? We can study our experience when there's suffering. And we can also, on a more subtle level, look into the very, very, uh, what? Um, very subtle roots of suffering at times. When the mind gets quiet, we can sometimes study those more subtle dimensions of suffering. So I think it's helpful, and I'll, I'll come back to those three levels of these insights as I go through each of them. So the insight into suffering is very much an insight into what suffering feels like and particularly how 
suffering is linked with a kind of strong, compulsive grasping or pushing away. We grasp after the pleasant and we push away the unpleasant. And so a lot of our exploration of this insight is in the very simple, everyday experiences which we have to really look at over and over again in which something is happening, typically that we don't like, and we um, try to push it away. You know, something is happening that makes my practice hard or difficult. You know, I'm, I don't have the right position on my cushion, or my cushion, I sh- my cushion, I still, it's two and a half weeks into the retreat, I still haven't kind of worked out posture. And if only I could, then I'd really get down to practice. Or it could be that nearby meditator, you know, who is um, causing my mind to get a little crazy. And my thought is, this is a difficulty if only the difficulty would go away, then I can really get down to meditating and seeing things as they are. You get it? <laughs> if only I don't see what's there now, <laughs> then at a future time, I can see what's there, which you can translate that, right? What does that translate into? It translates into things as th- seeing things as they are means seeing pleasant things. When they're unpleasant things, I don't want to see things as they are. <laughs> and therefore, when unpleasant things come, I think, okay, my practice is off. Something bad is happening, and I have to change things so I can get back to seeing things as they are, which I don't quite realize, but the subtext is it only means seeing things when they're pleasant. I mean, it's, when we look at it like that, it's pretty obvious, right? But how, mu- how much do we do that? How much do, we, how, how much do we follow our practice like that? And so we can really take a look at when we can't be with something because there's a kind of wanting. You know, because we want something else to happen or we really want the object. We really want something. And we, can, we have to study wanting and we have to study aversion. This is really how we come to deeper insight. So that means we have to simply notice when our mind is caught in wanting. We have to look at when we might be caught in wanting about a meal or about our practice or the the famous Vipassana romance, which most of you have heard about which is when the mind, out of its habit of wanting, latches on to a particular being, typically at the retreat, and decides that all future happiness and probably liberation and perhaps a life of shared meditation (laughs) is only possible with this person. And it's really great to study this and to look at it and to stay with it and really try to tune in. What is that like? What is that quality of wanting like? Because actually what one discovers, and probably many of us know this very well, it has rather little to do with the object of our attention. You know, and, and this, is, this is a complete setup for that, being here. You know, we can't talk to people We don't even know if they speak English. (laughs) You know, I I remember for myself, it was very telling one retreat. I had this very strong Vipassana romance and I was, I think I was here for two months and the person left after two weeks. The first two weeks, I was really shocked, you know, and you know, oh, <laughs> my heart hurt. And then, sure enough, within a day or two, it latched onto someone else. As if 
it was really the wanting that was going out there looking for trouble. <laughs> or going out there and looking. And so we have to study that. We have to see how the process of wanting works. And see how we create a kind of a bubble like that. We create a bubble based on wanting. You know, and this is something we find in our own individual minds. We find it in the world. You know, I once, when I was 18, 19, I worked in the US Congress. I sometimes think of it as a past life. I worked in the US Congress as an intern. And it was actually a difficult experience because it was somewhat disillusioning because I found that the structure of politics was totally wrapped up with wanting. In this case, wanting to get reelected. And as an 18 or 19 year old and 19 year old, I was really shocked that people were not interested in the issues. The only people interested in the issues were the members of the legislative staffs. They knew what was happening and what needed to be done. And the politicians couldn't do what needed to be done because it was politically, for the most part, unfeasible. And they had to think of re-election. It was kind of shocking. But it was like it made me see politics as like this bubble of, to, to a significant extent, of unreality. It's like this bubble that just is based on getting far removed from direct experience, based on wanting in this case. Or we can think of how that happens out in the society with consumerism. We get so wrapped up with wanting this, wanting this product, this, to see this new film or this new that, that we can consume our lives with wanting and never get around to really looking carefully at our, at our experience. And we can be, have a real bubble. And I think that's, you know, in many ways, our society is kind of a bubble like that. It's a bubble that's removed from reality so that we live in this bubble of consumption and for me, in many cases privilege while large numbers of people in the world are suffering and we're consumed with wanting you know, and, and wanting consumes us. You know? So there are these ways that we can study that. We have to study that. We have to see what are my patterns whereby I form these bubbles or these structures of wanting. What is that like? Can I feel the connection with suffering? Can I feel the connection? Can I explore the connection with a certain kind of lack of reality or getting far removed from experience? Can I see how in my meditation, when, I try, when, when I'm consumed with wanting, I don't really experience things directly? You know, we can see this with eating, you know, and you know, the old habit of once the food is in the mouth, the fork goes looking for something else. You know, the wanting is overriding our experience. And can we study the wanting and come to see how that gets in the way of our, of our direct experience? You know? And the same thing with aversion or, um, or hatred. We can see how when there's something happening that we don't want, we push it away. We don't want to experience it. We can't see accurately. And so the invitation is to find the resources and the understanding when what's unpleasant or difficult comes up to be with it over and over again. As we do that, it takes us further into this core insight about suffering and the roots of suffering. You know? And this, this uh, sense of aversion is deeply rooted in our being. And I think also, it's also very wide in the society that, you know, for most of us, um, there were wounds in our early life. We had places of wounds or difficulty or pain. And when those happen in a young being, and the young being can't deal with it, doesn't have the resources to deal with it, it basically goes underground into the unconscious. You know, so this is essentially how neurosis forms. And neurosis is a kind of attempt to ward off the pain from the past in an unconscious way. 
So if I, for example, have um, had a difficult childhood, let's say, where my parents were divorced when I was four, four years old, five years old, ten years old, this may have been really difficult or even impossible to actually feel what was being felt. And I may have tremendous pain around abandonment. And so when anything comes up in my experience that seems like abandonment, you know, if I'm in a relationship and my partner goes away for the weekend, it may bring that pain up and I may feel that past pain. And part of what we can do is, this could be done in psychotherapy, it's also done in retreat, is that we see how much there is pain from the past. And we, at times, can be with it. And being present with the pain of the past can be healing. You know, and there are different ways to do it, dependent on on the nature of that pain. But when we don't do that, we set up all sorts of ways that we don't want to experience something or get close to an experience because it's bringing up the threat of the pain. It could be with abandonment, it could be with a host of other issues. And we all have some version of that, so we all carry certain um, fear of pain, basically, into the present moment. And we, we try to find ways to work with that, but we all have something like that. You know, and societies do the same thing. Societies have pain from the past they don't want to deal with. You know, like something like the history of slavery and racism. Society doesn't want to deal with it. It goes into the collective unconscious. And any time we get near it, there's all this stuff happening. You know, because we don't have ways of actually being with it. I think, personally, I think the same principles of mindfulness and creating safe containers to be with what's difficult are also the way to, to do it socially. I think the same principles apply. The same principles of really looking carefully and finding ways to be with what's difficult. But we can see sometimes the ways that we bring past pain or past discomfort into the present moment. One person who gave me permission to talk about this was saying that she was exploring how we drag the pain of or discomfort of the past into the present moment. We do that in a way with our emotional and often physical pain. We don't, can't really be fresh with it. We have somehow the memory of it and we bring it into the present moment so we can't really be with it. It influences us. And so the invitation is somehow to be with what's difficult, to open to it when we're able. And this opens to these insights into suffering and the roots of suffering. So we can look at this first level of looking at our actions, our behavior. We can really study our experience carefully. And as we go deeper and are more silent, we can sometimes see very subtle aspects of how we push away or grab hold. We can sometimes see just these little blips in our consciousness when the mind is quiet that we kind of know, oh, that was wanting. You know, we can see, oh, that was aversion. Or we can feel the subtleness of that conditioning. And we can see it more clearly and, and notice more clearly. So we also have in, develop insights into impermanence. We develop insights into the nature of change. And again, I think it's helpful to think of these three levels. We can have reflections at a more gross level about impermanence. We can, um, as the Tibetans do in their foundational training, they say, look at your own impermanence. Look at how you will die. You know, that you will not live forever. And we don't know the time. This is taken to be a way to uh, bring urgency into practice. And so we can look at impermanence in that way. Or we can reflect on impermanence you know, in nature, in the natural world. 
And then we can also see how our experience is changing. We can start to notice that impermanence more moment to moment. And we can see how we tend to create permanence in our experience. We can see how we tend to make this thought or this emotion or this um, unpleasant sensation in knee, we can see how we make that solid in a way. We can see those structures, I would call those certain structures of delusion, or they create a bubble, you know, in which we create something solid and unchanging. You know, and, and we can look at that. We can notice how we do that with um, creating a world of objects. You know, and it's sometimes helpful to reflect that <clears throat> we very much see these permanent objects very much influenced by, I think, two main things, very much influenced by language and concepts. That concepts tell us about a seeming world of, of objects that are just named and out there. And I think we're very much influenced into getting a sense of solid, permanent things by language and concepts. And I think also by vision. You know, imagine if, we, if our understanding of the world was based on our sense of sound. What would that be like? Or touch. Would we have that same sense of permanence? I think our vision really is, tends to make us see things as more permanent than they are. And it's a very interesting practice sometimes when one can uh, become more quiet and be with the flow of experience and really tune into impermanence and do that with eyes closed and then open one's eyes. And I, when I've done that, I can see how just when I'm near an object, I can feel drawn in almost to the concept and also how it's possible to be with the world of objects with eyes open and not be taken in by permanence. It's a kind of a practice or a training. It's also been fascinating to sometimes see that it's possible to shift the lens and now I'm with the flow of impermanence and now I let myself be taken into the conventional world of forms and to go back and forth like that. It's interesting, you know, just to see that, to, to explore that. And so concretely, we can really study this sense of impermanence by tuning into the way that particular experiences rise and fall, arise and pass away. Notice the breath. Notice when it arises. Notice the passing. Notice when an emotion comes. Notice when it comes. Notice when it leaves. Notice if it changes into something else. I once had a retreat uh, where I was um, angry for 10 days in a row at a retreat, 18 hours a day. It's only happened once. But uh, I got to study anger and how it arose and passed and changed into other things. I I had never done something like that before. It was really amazing just to see how emotions shift and they open up to other emotions or memories. And there's just this continual flow. We can, we can have that sense of the movement of experience like that. Can notice our experiences changing, arising. We can actually take a sitting and say, let me just notice change. Let me just notice impermanence. Let me just do that in that sitting. Let me just focus on that. I'll just say a few words about not-self because it's really parallel to what we've been exploring with suffering and impermanence. We can, again, I think, work on these three levels. We can look out for when we have experiences in which the self gets big, in which we are, in which we act to enhance a self-image. We can look at our behavior and see when the self arises, you know, and I mentioned in the talk um, a week ago how for me there are these subtle ways that I, um, especially in my youth, 
that I wanted to look good as a meditator. Now, of course, all of us have totally gone beyond such things, at least 5 or 10% of the time. <laughs> that was a joke. So. <laughs> um, and we can watch those self-images, you know, looking good. Or for me, as I mentioned, it was staying up late or sitting for a long time or those sort of things. We can see if they're self-images or, you know, you might say, I, I really um, just took a very moderate amount of food at lunch today. I hope that the entire rest of the retreat noticed that. <laughs> so if that happens, we can, just, we can just see. We can look on that level. We can also, on that second level of studying experience, really see when, um, when something like self comes, when we are having an experience and it suddenly gets big, some unpleasant experience, and we lash onto it, latch onto it, and we say, oh no, that again, you know, that's going to be bad. And there's some kind of selfing occur, we might say, some structure of self occurring. And we can see when we're quiet, you know, and there's just that flow of impermanent experience. When does the self arise? When does a sense of self arise when we're, when we're more quiet? We can study that. And we can some, some, sometimes, when the mind gets very quiet, study this arising and passing of self as these little blips that come and go and really get a sense of this continued movement whereby a sense of self comes, a sense of self goes. So it's not easy to look into these aspects, we might say, of reality, although that wasn't a word the Buddha used. It's not easy to look at, into these three areas. It takes a lot of courage, actually. It takes a lot of the support structures we've been talking about. It takes a lot of faith and access to joy. It takes the ethical foundation of the container and of our lives. It takes mindfulness and concentration. It's not easy. I I do believe Yeats was right when he said that it's so difficult to really look at oneself carefully. So we need these qualities. And as we proceed, as we see into these three aspects more clearly, I think we move in, in several directions, or several, several things happen. You know, and in the model of liberative dependent arising, as we see more clearly into these insights, we move towards what's called uh, disenchantment and translated as dispassion, a sense of that the old hooks don't work in the same way, that our old motivations don't work in the same way, that our old wantings and habits don't work in the same way. And Sharda will be exploring that that more. But I want to make just two comments in closing about that movement and about this process of seeing more clearly. Um, First of all, it's not easy. You know, that sometimes when we see more clearly these three characteristics of impermanence and the nature of suffering and the arising and passing of self, when we see it, especially when we see it in a deeper way that's somewhat new, it can be disorienting. And at times it can even be scary, you know. And we, it also, so I think it can arise, sometimes some quality of anxiety or fear can arise from seeing clearly. Just to know that if that happens, that's normal that actually most of our new insights in practice take some time to stabilize and can be a little disorienting. I think it's good to know that because it occurs. And yet there's also, I think, the arising of compassion. Because as we see more clearly into impermanence and suffering and the structure of self, we can have compassion for ourselves and our own suffering. And we can also have compassion for others. As we see those more carefully, we can realize how widespread these structures of delusion are. 
And there can be some compassion that arises, which is really ultimately the compassion that um, helps us to help others and to be with others. I think I'll end just with that recognition that in, for example, in the Zen ox herding pictures, which really give their version of something like this model of transcendental dependent arising, after the ox, which is, you know, as it were, reality has been seen, the last of the ox herding pictures really points to that quality of compassion after seeing clearly The practitioner enters the city, it said, with bliss bestowing hands, enters the marketplace, the city, with the intention to help others. Or in the image of Plato, it's actually interesting, in that text, one doesn't stay in the sunlight, but rather based on one's knowledge of the cave, one goes back into the cave to help others. This is, we're really talking about this intertwining of wisdom and the heart, of clear seeing of insight in the heart, that I think really is not explicit in this model that we're working with, but I think it's kind of implicit because we've had these um, emphases on heart qualities, delight and joy, happiness throughout. So I think it could easily be there. But that insight and wisdom evokes compassion. And so in Plato says, each of you when the turn comes must now go down into the general underground and get in the habit of seeing in the dark. When you have acquired the habit, you will see 10,000 times better than the inhabitants of the cave. And you will know what the images are because you have seen clearly. So I want to end with that guidance from the Sutta on Bahia, in which he gives the most general instruction on how to be with our experience, how to cultivate knowledge and vision of things as they are, of our experience as it's arising. Bahia. You should train yourself like this. Whenever you see a form, simply see. Whenever you hear a sound, simply hear. Whenever you smell an aroma, simply smell. Whenever you taste a flavor, simply taste. Whenever you feel a sensation, simply feel. Whenever a thought arises, let it just be a thought. Then you will not exist in the usual sense. Whenever you do not exist, you will not be found. That is the end of suffering. So let's sit for a minute or two. Thank you very much uh, for your attention and for your practice. And if you wish, there'll be a renewal of the precepts with the next sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.